Welcome to the Planning People podcast. My name is Will Robbins. Uh, I'm the editor of New Model Advisor. I'm joined today by Cicero Executive Chairman Ian Anderson. Uh, Ian uh, co-founded Cicero Group and uh, focuses on public policy, corporate communications uh, and strategy that supports uh, many global FTSE and Fortune 500 blue chip organisations. He can also now be found as a regular expert guest on national news broadcasts and has been the first person we call whenever an election, referendum or major political event is on the horizon. He is also a friendly face at the often mesmerising political conferences we attend. Hello, Ian. Hello, good to be here. First things first, um, deal or no deal, is this deal, now that it's being scrutinised, going to get through? Well, look, the first thing to say is there's a deal. Uh, You know, one of the big questions a lot of political geeks like me had for the last two, three months since Boris became prime minister is, is he serious about no deal? Is he serious about getting a deal? And a lot of stuff was thrown at him uh, to suggest that he wasn't really serious, um, that he wasn't going to Europe, he wasn't having the conversation. It was all a bit of show, and he had absolutely no intention to do anything. So he's got a deal, and I think that's entirely changed the political landscape. Um, What does it mean? It means for the first time, Parliament has voted for a deal. It, I mean, it, you know, just the other day, it yeah. said that yeah. it would take the deal into what's called a second reading. Uh, now, it had a big old debate about what the government wanted to do, which was to try and shorten that conversation to three days. Um, didn't want to do that. But it, for the first time, Boris did something that Theresa May wasn't able to do, and that was mm. get, get the principle of getting a deal past but it's done two other things firstly i think it makes the liberals liberal democrats posture which is to revoke look like a policy that now can't work they wanted to revoke because there was no deal and for labor he's boxed labor into a real corner on almost exactly the same question i mean um, yeah. You give me what Labour's policy is in a single sentence. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you that question. I, well, that's not very easy to do. And that's going to be the problem in the forthcoming general election, which I know we'll come back to. Mm. But um, was he serious about getting a deal? Yes, he was. Was he prepared to um, you know, throw some people under the bus like the DUP in Northern Ireland to get some kind of deal? Yes, he was. Was he able to negotiate... Uh, with the European Union and the Irish Taoiseach, um, yes, he was. So I think the whole atmosphere has changed. His problem is, will the current House of Commons attach a Christmas tree's worth of baubles, (laughs) amendments to the legislation that basically dismember his deal? And that's what's being debated right now. Because... Right. So, yes, because if they do that, the the risk is then you could then pass in the Commons but not be accepted by Europe. Yeah, so... So what sort of things could... What, where, where are the hazards here? What so the, so the, the really big hazard is, and this has you know, been quite important for the financial services industry, mm. the real, really big hazard is that Labour 
table um, an amendment to create a customs union and as much single market access as possible. Um, and that gets accepted. Now, his party, yeah. Boris Johnson's party, don't want to go anywhere near a customs union. Yeah. And the other thing to say is that since Boris has thrown out an awful lot of um, essentially Remainers uh, from his parliamentary party, the Tory parliamentary party that he's got, albeit he's lost his majority by doing that, but it's much more cohesive than it was under uh, Theresa May. So yeah. customs union is one. Um, you know, there could be the possibility of trying to say, let's have a second referendum as well. There were. But my bet is that, remember this stuff was tried and all those, remember those indicative votes yes. earlier in the year? Right. They said, yeah. like, yeah. you know, multiple choices for yeah. MPs, completely unprecedented parliamentary stuff. None of those, none of those options, mm. customs union, second referendum, none of them passed. So I think yeah. given I think given the shape of the current parliament, yeah. we might get ourselves, unless there is an election, into a situation where in principle a deal can pass, yeah. but not Boris's deal. Right. So I I, I get I, it's an interesting point whether the amendments yes, they could attach amendments, but none of as you say, there's so much fragmentation that the fact that the deal is already past initial votes would would seem to say that it's likely to keep going. Well, what he is hoping for, and, and we're talking today when we're still waiting to hear formally from Brussels yeah. whether or not he'll get the extension. Everything I'm hearing from the Cicero uh, team in Brussels is he, he will get the extension. And the extension, extension is, is so that there can be proper parliamentary time to, to debate this? Well, from Brussels' point of view, it's to ensure that the parliament, UK Parliament can just pass a deal. Yeah. You talk to Irish politicians right now, I talk to a lot of Irish politicians right now, yeah. and they say pretty much what French politicians are saying right now, which is an extension to do what? Right. Hopefully that extension is about passing a deal. What is being debated as well right now, really actively, in the heart of government here in the UK is, does Boris just say, right, if Europe gives us an extension till the end of January, that's what's most likely. Let's try and go for the election now. Let's get a new parliament, mm. from his point of view, a new parliament with a conservative majority, yeah. candidates that have been elected on the basis of Boris's deal as part of their manifesto, right. and right. Uh, it's a slam dunk. Yeah. But it's a gamble because, of course, when you go into any election, as Theresa May found yeah. with a 20-point lead in the polls <laughs> in 2017, yeah. uh, he may not end up with that majority, and we may be crashing back to square one. What do you, what do you think? Do you think we could have an election, what, before Christmas? We can definitely have an election before Christmas. Everyone's got rather hung up on the fixed-term Parliament Act that you know yeah. there needs to be a two-thirds majority in Parliament or there needs to be a vote of confidence and there's time for a new government to form. Um, look, a Parliament can do anything it wants and the way to get to an election before Christmas is this. You pass a one-line piece of legislation which says, notwithstanding this thing called the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, we this parliament mm. decided that we're going to have an election in five weeks' time. Right now, both the Conservatives and 
interestingly, the Scottish nationalists, who are also desperate to get to an election before the new year. Why? Because there's something coming up in the new year called the Alex Salmon trial uh, which is not going to be good. <laughs> not okay. going to be good headlines for the SNP in yeah. any way, shape, or form. That's why the SNP are desperate to get to the election. Uh, the Tories in the SNP voting for an election, maybe also with the DUP because the Ulster Unionists don't like this deal. You add those three together, and we're we're, we're probably heading to an election. Yeah. Uh, and okay, yeah, that's a simple majority. The House of Lords, of course, would have to pass that bill too. There might be lots of peers in the House of Lords that don't want to let Boris have his deal, but the yeah. idea of the House of Lords, the unelected chamber, blocking an election that the House of Commons wants to have, well, look, anything is possible yeah. right yeah, now, but, but it really would be our constitution busting apart. Yeah, it would would be rather too much given given the context that, that's, that's motivated a lot of this in the, in the first place. So just just before we get, get on to the election, just on the deal, the, the, some uh, some questions I have, I suppose. Just the trade the trade offs in this deal are quite interesting. So I was just reading reading up it today because I've often sort of said, look, we, you know, I've often retorted to to sort of hardline bre- Brexiteers, you could have you could be out already if you'd voted for de- Theresa Theresa May's deal you know breaks at any cost when it could have been at the cost of things you didn't like e.g things in Theresa May's deal so but clearly there for some people and somehow things have been taken out of this deal that were important so the, the 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 backstop issue is one of them but also I'm feeling uh, something I read today was, was sort of saying look it, it really this deal and it makes it a lot easier to pursue those those other agreements with other countries to say let's do an agreement with the US, which is from the from the Leave side always something that's kept coming up about this. These are the cause these are the the, the uh, this is the great frontier that we're going to be able to get into as a result of Brexit and, and not trapped in it with, with Europe. And so more friction with Europe right now, our closest trading partner, but these huge opportunities. What? What do you make of this trade-off? Are you a great? Are you an Atlanticist? Are you thinking, yeah, absolutely, you know, uh, that's that's feasible, or will it, or is it, or is it just, is it, you know, a lot of people have said, deal with the, Amer- have you ever dealt with the Americans? You never come out, you know, you never win when you deal with the Americans. They they're going to drive the hardest bargain known to man. But whether or not it was Theresa May's deal with the backstop, or whether or not it's Boris Johnson's deal without the backstop. First thing to say, there's a whole variety of economic forecasts kind of out there since we've seen Boris's deal suggesting that Theresa May's deal was slightly less negative for the economy uh, than Boris's deal. Mm. But look, let's not have a debate about economic forecasts because, <laughs> you know, frankly, that doesn't actually work Mm. with the electorate right now. We've got to be real. This is where economics and politics are, you know, two oils that just don't want to coagulate anymore. And we've seen that. We've seen that in a way since the Scottish independence referendum, although sort of, I think, the economic argument did trump the... Very tested, though. It was very, very very tested. Tested tested destruction, um, as I um, kind of explain um, in the book I've written, but also, um, you know, it's, I mean, it certainly didn't work in 2016. And 
uh, you know, economic forecasts are economic forecasts. They're either kind of right or, or they're wrong. That, your point about the trade deals, remember if, if we do this deal, what we also get is a transitional period. Now, the transitional period at the moment is due to end at the end of 2020 in mm. about uh, 14 months' time. But it's open to be extended uh, really up until about 20, um, uh, 2022. And given the high drama of what we constantly see in these negotiations, it can probably be extended even further. So the UK can't really get signing these sort of trade deals and get getting on with it until, you know, we've kind of passed those hurdles. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, for whoever is going to be the next government, either Boris Johnson continuing, Jeremy Corbyn, Uncle Tom Cobley, it doesn't really matter. Um, the, thing that, the thing that I think, though, is focusing minds, uh, whether you're a Remainer or you're a Brexiteer, um, is that this is a deal and this prevents the kind of high drama if you're like a project fear or the project fear argument, you could characterize it that way, of falling off a cliff, of uh, trucks being stuck in Dover or Holyhead or Stranraer, yeah. stuff not coming in and out. Yeah. The conversation that we're not having, and I think is particularly relevant to you know, your listeners, is we haven't been talking about 80% of our economy for the past 18 months. Right. You know, we've been talking about lorries being checked on the Irish border or what comes in and out of the port of Dover. What we haven't been talking about is what these new arrangements mean for services. Mm. And it's only really going to be the election ahead, and there has to be an election, because a government needs to pass a finance act. Mm. And if a government can't pass a finance act, you don't have a government. So regardless of your party politics, there has to be an election in the next few months, yeah. either before Christmas or by the spring. And that election is going to be an important factor in what is Britain's regulatory posture. Yes. Like. And I want to turn to your book in a minute. Uh, but Always happy to talk about always, <laughs> but But just on that point, I think that's, that's really interesting is... You know this. This uh, to, just to just to combine a few things at once, as it's kind of how it is. You know, there was a conversation uh, I was having on Twitter, probably an angry conversation uh, about, uh, and it was about workers workers' rights. So I was saying, uh, you know, I was taking a sort of quite sort of uh, bearish sort of Remainer attitude. I was saying, look, you know, isn't it isn't this bad? This deal, you know, there's you know what what Labour is saying that the, some of the uh, um, reassurances about maintaining workers' rights have been, been taken out, and someone retorted to say, "Well, come on, well, what's what's so wrong with the UK setting its own laws on workers' rights? You know, what's so what's so bad with that? Who says they're going to be worse? You know, you know that that could it could be better. You know, and um, notwithstanding the sort of the whole big argument about how the UK its its role in making the the rules that come then back that Europe makes and then come back to us. I mean that's 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 another argument uh, about our, our sort of agency there. But but okay, um, for me the, uh, the the question then seemed to be well actually having spoken to actually a couple of friends who were worried about this, it was about um, you know they they just said well I just don't I don't know what's going to happen in the next five years. You know yes you know 
we could, it could, things could be, you know, we get, could get greater protections, but maybe not for me, maybe not with the next government, maybe not with this Tory government that, you know, perhaps reflects their own, their own biases there, but, you know, worry, worried about what's happened in the next five years, their lifetime, their, their careers and so on. So that, I don't want to necessarily get into a big debate about workers' rights, but it did illustrate how after Brexit, things will, some things will change very much so, so according to the, the government in the day, of the day, a lot more than they used to, which is sort of the point. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. but, but for financial services, for example, yeah. it's, there is obviously uh, an opportunity, an inflection point here, where uh, regu through regulation, through other sort of bits of lawmaking, the, the sort of the, the, the culture, the colour of it, the nature of it could could very much change. But I don't know what you know what you speak to people, you've got you know, what what's what's the feeling that we're gonna go are we gonna become I think to, to nick a phrase you used before we started talking uh, Singapore uh, on Thames yeah, or, I mean, or, or sort of ultra regulatory land. So you know there's an important choice that could be coming up in days, you know, just listening to what the Chancellor's been saying, but um, the delayed, and, you know, it is delayed, appointment of the new Governor of the Bank of England is going to provide a pretty big clue for this. Right. Now, everything I am picking up is that the government probably wants to make that appointment this side of a general election. Right to, you know, put somebody in for the next few years that is going to set the regulatory posture. And, you know, there are various names in the frame. There are people whose names are in the frame, like Andrew Bailey, who um, obviously the current CEO of the FCA. Um, uh, I, I think with Andrew, you can expect to see... Uh, well, a very accomplished and experienced regulator, mm. someone who's been around the block from you know the the collapse of bearings right the way through to the financial crisis and beyond, uh, and has done an exceptional job at the FCA. I, I think, um, you know, it's a whack-a-mole job. That it's a really, really difficult. It's a very conduct is a very conduct regulation is very, very difficult, and I think he's massively improved the FCA's stature. But okay. there are other people in, 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 you know, who are being talked about, people like Helena Morrissey, people like Gerald Lyons, yeah. um, who would probably have quite a different approach. And so on the first question, are we going to have an approach which is sort of freewheeling, buccaneering, um, um, really, if you like, to use the political terminology, taking advantage of all the opportunities that Brexit provides or may provide, I think we've got to look at which of those personalities is appointed to the job. The second and really important and related question um, goes back to our, the earlier part of our conversation, which is a more freewheeling approach, a more buccaneering approach, a say a approach from Treasury as well towards a, a lower corporate tax environment in yeah. this country, a lower just a lower tax environment for pensions and savings generally. Yeah. Yeah. That that yeah. would change mm. quite a lot. Mm. And of course what it would also do, you asked me about workers' rights, but 
for the financial services sector, one of the things, of course, that we've been debating quite hard uh, in the last three years is to is to what level of equivalence with Europe yeah. are we going to have? Are we going to basically continue to be and have similar equivalent rules to uh, the EU, or are we going to diverge much more significantly? So. Yeah, I mean, I worry about an election. Uh, that's what I get paid to do. Um, frankly, listeners probably worry about an election too because it's going to have an impact on markets. It's going to have an impact yeah. on investors' sentiment, both retail and institutional investors, folks who are investing in this country. But there's a here and now, and I think quite upfront thing, which is what does the government, probably this government, do if it's able to appoint a new governor? If they're able to make that appointment this side of the election, yeah. that's a really big it clue really yeah. as to what kind of regulatory posture is going to be um, wrapped around the financial yeah. services yeah. sector. Well, I mean, what has already been happening to financial services? I and mean, this has been going on for years, this, this, uh, this period of, of uncertainty, I suppose. But... You know what? Are, you know, our. I mean, financial. I mean, we we hear about, as you say, we hear about trucks a lot. We hear about fishing, <laughs> but we don't hear about other other things. Someone mentioned on Twitter the other day what's been happening with our computer games industry. It's actually a real success story. Other parts of tech, but financial services as well. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, there was a threat that people would threat. I suppose but, you know, that people were going to leave. We're going to lose our status as, as a launching pad into to Europe. But uh, you know, what what's just to tell me, what have you what have you seen? You know, you, you travel places. So um, initially, after the referendum, uh, I don't think I've ever seen business as emotional and financial services emotional. as emotional. Business oh, right. is supposed to be rational. Yeah. But you know, a lot of the banks, a lot of the asset managers, a lot of people, they kind of they wanted remain. Right. Why did they want remain? Forget the politics in a way. But if you're running your business, it's just a, it's just frankly cheaper not to have to completely rewire your business you know and people have spent millions billions the city has spent a lot of money rewiring for brexit right um so it sort of had a bit of a la 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 fingers in the ears <laughs> thing going on yeah until Theresa may stood up and said look you know i know you don't like it but we're not going to be in the customs union and we're not going to be in the single market mm. About four or five months later, you then had the UK regulators saying, with that in mind, the government is being very clear that we're not going to be part of those two uh, established concepts. Yeah. Um, we now need to see from the banks, the insurance companies, and the asset managers, we need to see what your Brexit plan looks like. And they really bear down on some of the systemic players mm. to make sure that they had a plan. And more importantly, a plan that was going to work that was going to work at either end of the uh, of the the passporting um, pipe, if you like. And in 2017, and massively in 2018, I saw the financial sector spend a fortune rewiring. So they put stuff into Dublin or into Frankfurt or into Luxembourg okay. or in some cases actually into Paris or into the Scandics. Um, to basically do a workaround, i.e. Mm. get passport access, be able to flow, uh, flow funds in, 
Um, the regulators really weren't able to move very much because the politicians wouldn't let them. But right at the last minute in February, March, before the Theresa May potential cliff edge, yes. yeah, we got, we and we saw, and you guys wrote about them, the sort of memorandums of understanding that then took place from the UK regulators with the European regulators. Yeah, right. So what we have right now is, if you like, um, and I'm sure listeners will remember this, it's a bit like what we saw in 2008-2009. After the financial crisis, major disruption, lots of regulatory change, people doing workarounds. Right. Yeah. So people, what I, what I would say is people have spent, the you know, product providers have spent millions on workarounds. Right. Moving people, establishing entities in yeah. inside the EU zone. They would still rather keep it here in the UK if they can, but they needed to be ready for the regulator. Yeah. So the big question that I've got is if we've got a deal, looks like we've got a deal at some point, if we've got transition because we've got a deal, if we're just going to stop talking about Brexit and start doing business again, then you know, sit me down in the studio in a year and let's talk about what firms are saying about whether or not the rewiring that they've just done works. Sort of works, yeah, yeah. Or whether or not they want to rewire back to the UK or whether or not it just doesn't work at all and they need to beef up what they're doing in those other right. um, EU territories. I can't answer that question yeah. right now, but it's a question that lots of firms are posing to themselves. So some of that, some of what may, you know, some of what may see have seemed like people leaving. I mean, I think every story where so and so set up an office here, such and such number of people are moving or, or having to be reassigned or new people, can seem like a, a migration. But actually, it's a sort of diversification. It's a, a diversification in, in a way. I mean, one of the one of the things I've heard a lot in the last uh, three and a half years is. Um, because of lots of great factors, time zone, language, yeah. the ecosystem, the skill set that exists in this country, which still remain excellent, um, the UK was just a great place to passport from. Mm. Now, you took the passport away um, and people had to rewire, as I said, but, but still, all the other factors I've talked about, time zone, language, skill set, capabilities... You know, n none of that has changed very much. Uh, sure. In fact, in many ways, the you know I'm deeply involved, as you know, in the fintech conversation yeah. uh, with what I do with the, yeah. fintech, the fintech strategy group for the City of London, right. and that you know that story just carries on. I mean, you know, actually, despite but, Brexit, yeah. <laughs> that's all been that's all been that's all been quite but good. Tell us a little bit, like a little bit about that, because that's that's interesting in and of it itself, fintech. You know, in, in terms of my own publication, New Model Advisor, we come across it, obviously, in relation to things like digital investment, digital wealth management, or robo-advice, dare I say it. Um, but obviously, there are, among other things, like the pensions dashboard or regtech. I mean, there, there's fintech is way, is way bigger, but uh, yeah. it's something that, you know, we're, we're on the... the we were seeing a little. We we're seeing it through a tiny aperture, <laughs> but well, it's fascinating. It's endlessly fascinating. No, and and it, it, at the moment, it's a smaller aperture than banking and payments. Right. Banking and payments is still the biggest that's part the of big, the fintech that's the pie. Big thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's you know, I mean, fintech is essentially largely been about the plumbing. 
Yeah. Um, so how do you Moving get? Money the, yeah. How do you move transactions around yeah. and all of that? Yeah. I think you know very candidly, um, financial advice has been slow to embrace it. I yeah. think there's been a concern that it removes the people part of the equation. Yeah. I think actually some of the savvier players in the market are getting just that, much, much more savvy to say there's a human part of it, but there's also a digital part of it because the humans are getting very used to the digital bit yeah. and they want stuff delivered to them um, in, a, in a variety of ways. But, you know, to our political conversation, um, the one thing that, you know, we get beyond election, we get into a new agenda, we get into that new regulatory posture... Yeah. Uh, I'm quite excited, I, you know, I remain very excited about the opportunities, but I'm really quite excited about the opportunity to sort of lift off some of these conversations again, some of the conversations that, because the political bandwidth has been so stretched, that Treasury can get back into, that yeah. politicians generally can get back into again. And there's a really big job for, you know, the savings and investment industry to to come and have that conversation. Mm. Now, Ian, tell me, you have a book out. I'm very glad you mentioned the book. Yeah, how could I, how could I not? <laughs> but look, tell me about because you mentioned it earlier and you said, you know, you, you touched on it, but I think you're, the thesis of this book is, is important to what we've been talking about. So maybe, maybe sort of explain, explain what that, that is. So briefly. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm a polite person, so I will um, uh, be as polite as I can with the title. It's called F Business. <laughs> Um, Where does that come from? Someone say that? I think so. Maybe our current prime minister said that. And when when he said that, I wrote a piece for the the Times saying, wow, my goodness, right, that's interesting. You've got a centre-right politician saying F business. Um, And I got a huge reaction to what I wrote. Uh, So I thought, hmm. And I tucked the idea away. And um, no, I actually... Um, we're all going mad with Brexit. We're all going mad with this kind of period. I need to find some sort of personal catharsis and write it down. So I, I, I rocked up at uh, Biteback, my publishers, and they uh, said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, talking about the relationship between politics and business. Um, yeah, can you... Um, yeah, we'll have the book in about two and a half months. So I, huh. I, I wrote like crazy, and, um, and it has been. It's been a very cathartic experience. And what I try and explain and explore are two or three things. One, what's going wrong with the relationship between business and politicians. Mm. I talk and build the story of the financial crisis, Mm. um, the fact that a lot of people feel that austerity was caused by bankers and business, uh, by finance. Uh, They don't necessarily disintermediate. They just think it's sort of rich people in the financialized part of the economy. They get all the benefits and they don't, and that, and I roll forward into the coalition government, into the Scottish independence referendum as the dry run, uh, if you like, for what happened with Brexit. Although it yeah. worked for Cameron that time, by the time we got to 2016, he rolled the dice again. Politicians tried to use business yeah. to tell a story to voters. They tried to get car manufacturers to say that they were going to take stuff out of the country or banks to say that they were going to take stuff out of the country and it didn't work. Letters signed by the great and the good. Letters signed by the great and the good um, that that didn't work anymore. 
And it kind of culminates, you know, that the phrase on the front of the book, it culminates in, in, in Boris saying F business when he just got sick of being lobbied. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm a lobbyist, so I better write about that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that, you know, I tell a whole bunch of, um, uh, you know, make a whole bunch of um, examples and try to bring it to life in the book. But, you know, to just give you an a, a insight, a sentence, if you like, that unpacks all of it. The Theresa May government had a series of rolling conference calls with businesses trying okay. to explain what its deal was and whether it was going to get a deal and what was going to go on. And um, the very last one that I dialed into was in Easter this year. And uh, you had major members of the cabinet talking to business leaders. And normally the relationship between businesses and politicians is quite deferential. Right. Um, and one of the people, we listened to the politicians quite respectfully, and they then took questions. And this major US inward investor turned round to three very senior members of the cabinet, who I, I talk about in the book, and <laughs> said, I, I've heard what you have to say. Um, I don't believe a word any of you tell me anymore. And you could feel wow. the rest of the call kind of crackle slightly. With, oh my goodness! I don't believe he's just said that. <laughs> and Shifting in their chairs. And, yeah. yeah. And I talked to wow. you know people on the record in the book, people like Jurgen Mayer, the chief executive of Siemens here in the UK, wow. major inward investor. Um, he says that he hasn't seen the relationship as bad between business and politics since the mid nineteen seventies. So something's going wrong. And what I try and paint um, is, you know, an opportunity for a better way forward. And I think that includes two things. One is government policymakers generally being less sort of arbitrary about who they want to see and the nods and the winks and the can you provide a photo opportunity and a hard hat, high visibility (laughs) jacket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or can you actually provide something a lot more substantial Mm. and and a better way for business to be able to engage with government and politicians. But the second thing is there's a big ask of business, and that is, you know, you've got to look in the mirror and you've got to look at high pay and you've got to look at um, consumers' attitudes to products that don't work or rip you off or don't do what they're supposed to do on the tin. And so, you know, in a way, business deserves what it gets. Sometimes, again, for this sector, finance deserves what it gets. Um, but can we just get a more respectful conversation going on, really? A bit more adult relationship between uh, business and, and, and politics. Yeah. And business, and it's interesting, it's a business and, and it's consumers as well. Yes. And it's customers as well. That's right. Yeah, I mean, so digital has mashed everything up, hasn't it? But, you know, digital was supposed to be about conversation. Digital was supposed to be about stopping the kind of old style way of communicating with each other, which was transmit, receive, you know, big broadcasting messages. It was supposed to be much more individual. Um, What's been lost in this, and you've kindly picked up on my thesis, what's been lost in this, and I try and argue in the book, is the idea of respect. Mm. And um, where I'd like us to get to again, and I, you know, it's a bit of a howl for respect, is for both sides to start listening to each other, but both sides need to step up and 
um, as I say, business, you know, frankly, need to stop ripping people off. <laughs> uh, and maybe the regulator's got a, a job to do in, 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 in that regard yeah. in a market economy. But politicians need to stop blaming businesses for stuff that they're getting wrong themselves. Yeah, interesting. Now, two, two short questions. <laughs> Default, because I want to, uh, want to end sort of on, on, the, on, the, on the election, uh, the election fund. But uh, just, just on that business thing, the one observation I'd make is, uh, and for the life of me now, I can't remember his name, which I'll be punished in, in eternally for, but uh, the man who runs Weatherspoons. Um, yeah, Tim. Tim, uh, it's, his name is Tim. Uh, he rolled out uh, every, a lot, you know, as, as a sort of, now, interesting, as a sort of insurgent voice of business, as a sort of, and also as a kind of, what seemed to me quite seductive, so, so, voice of business of being like, look, I know business. I'm a real world guy. Um, I I order. I know. I have to order food. I have to order drink. I have to pay taxes and all this stuff. If I say it's going to be okay, you can believe me. I, that's an interesting exception, maybe, or, no, or maybe not, it proves. That. No, it's not an exception. Um, again, what I've identified in the book is that Tim Martin. Tim Martin. I knew the, that. Is was it Tim name. Martin? Yeah. Or James Dyson. Yeah. Um, basically, with what the Leave campaign did very effectively was be pitch broadly, and this is a massive, massive generalization, but that's what politics is. Sure. Entrepreneurs versus corporates. Right. So the reason Tim Martin or James Dyson cut through in a way that the chief executive of a bank or fund manager didn't yeah. is that most voters can walk into uh, Weatherspoons. Yeah. Most voters will have heard of a Dyson machine. Yeah. yeah? And um, they will, uh, and they respect them. I did Question Time, BBC Question Time, earlier this year, and it was the week that James Dyson had decided to take his corporate headquarters from the UK to Singapore. And I said to that audience, I said, well, you know, um, the tax won't be paid here anymore. And I got quite a strong reaction from the audience in Winchester, I think it was, <laughs> um, saying, yeah, but, but he can do whatever he wants because... He's a brilliant entrepreneur, and he's self-made. Mm. So right. the cleverness of the Leave campaign, and it still resonates now, I think, in terms of the, the you know, who do voters listen to, yeah. is, uh, you know, we're often criticised in this country for not being like America, that we don't actually applaud our entrepreneurs. I think we applaud Branson, who interestingly took the opposing view, sure, and people would listen to Branson, but they applaud Dyson, yeah, they applaud uh, Tim at Weatherspoons, yeah, yeah, um, they're less inclined to applaud someone that gets the job of CEO of XYZ Bank because it's his or her, but usually his turn. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think that's a critical part of it. It's about connection. It's about um, it's authenticity. It's about authenticity, it? and and again, back to my 
our earlier word, it's also about respect. Skin in the game, is it? So just finally, uh, the election. So if it is, we don't you know, the further in the future, the, the less certain things get, but election is held tomorrow, who'd win? Um, I think our, our central scenario at Cicero is that Boris Lodge's party. Right. Um, and then you work up from that. I go back to what you and I talked about earlier. I, I think that, because in the end, he did want a deal. He could have walked away from the table. Mm. But in the end, he did want a deal. Yeah. Um, and, of course, he's packaging that together with a significant outreach to um, Brexit and Labour Party voters um, and a, a significant spending commitments to, to, to both. Um, you know, sat here talking to you today, uh, it's, it's, it's more likely than not that he continues to be our Prime Minister. Yeah, interesting. Ian, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's Thursday. We'll try and get this podcast out as soon as possible before anything changes. Well, it'll all be wrong uh, all by be tomorrow. Wrong. It's, all, it's already changed. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.